And good evening. Well, we continue in what is our second study in this new series of studies in 1 John. So you can turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5. Last week was our introduction. So if you weren't with us, you can always find our messages online on our website. And also we have a podcast, so you can certainly visit that as well. This evening, we are going to be talking about fellowship. The theme of this book, Fellowship in Christ. Fellowship in Christ. And this evening, we're going to be talking about the conditions for fellowship. You see, there are conditions for fellowship. Fellowship isn't something that you can automatically experience. That is, you, you, most people kind of think they're born Christians, you know. You can be born again, but to be born a Christian would imply that somehow we just automatically, out of the gate, have fellowship with, with, with God through Jesus Christ. And we don't have a relationship with God until we exercise faith in Jesus Christ, in God's Son, who died on the cross for our sins, and rose again on the third day, and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. So there are conditions for fellowship, and this evening, as we study John's writings, we're going to look at what those conditions are and consider in our hearts, are we where we're supposed to be? Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our fellowship, sweet time of fellowship and worship. Oh, Lord God, we're so grateful that we have this place to be together in your word. Lord, in this world, freedom is a precious commodity. It's a precious gift. And Lord, we don't like to face the truth that many of our freedoms are eroding in our country today, in our culture. And Lord, we're so grateful that at this moment, at this time, we can express freely our desire to worship you without limitation or restriction, and we pray it would stay that way. Lord, we just desire not to be reckless, but to worship you with all of our hearts, our minds, our soul, our strength, and just as importantly, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I enjoyed our introduction last week, a lot of information, but it got us to the place where we can begin in earnest this evening looking at what it is that John really wants to say. Now, just a quick reminder that this is a sort of a general epistle. It's written to all those that would read it, uh, not necessarily one group of people, but to any group of people. But there's one thing that I mentioned last week I want to remind you of, and that is there were heretics in the church at this point called the Gnostics. The word Gnostic means to know. And so there were people that walked around saying, I know, you don't know, but I know. I have secret knowledge. I have knowledge that you can't even begin to know. And they were proud, and they actually believed that uh, their bodies and their spirits were separate, so they didn't believe they really sinned. Because when their bodies sinned, they just sort of said, well, that's my body. That's not the real me. You know, I, I get mad at somebody, I punch him in the face, and I say, well, you know, that wasn't really a sin. That was just my body. That wasn't me. I didn't punch you. My fist did. You know, it's a kind of a silly way of thinking, and yet there were people who believed that. This separation of the body and the spirit and all this other nonsense, some of which we'll go through here. They didn't believe they sinned. They, they, they didn't believe they had to obey the word of God. Uh, they didn't believe they had to walk in the light. They believed that they could do whatever they wanted. They didn't even believe they needed to love one another. And so all of that as a backdrop explains why right out of the gate, John in verse 5 of chapter 1, starts to talk about these things and speaks to these heresies that were going on in the church. Let's start by looking at just the first few verses. And there are five sections that we're going to look at over the next few minutes. Uh, again, dealing with the conditions for fellowship. The first is we must walk in the light. We must walk in the light if we want to have fellowship with God and with his people. Look what it says there in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin or every sin. That is a very well-stated argument against this idea that there are no conditions for fellowship with God. 
So you can't go through life thinking that there aren't conditions. What's a condition? I was a programmer. I was an IT professional for 20 years. Here's what I know. We used to write a lot of if statements. They're called conditional statements. And the idea is, if something's true, then this happens. If it's not, then something else happens. It's called binary logic. The idea, yes, no, on, off. And in our relationship with God, it comes down to a conditional relationship with God. Now, it's not based on our merit or our good works, but it is based on whether or not we respond to God's good work, God's complete work of salvation on the cross. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. But for this study, I don't want anyone thinking at any point that I'm even remotely suggesting that you have anything to do with your salvation. You don't other than responding to God's great salvation. So as we look at this, we must walk in the light. Now, he uses light and darkness. I mentioned this last week. It's antithesis. You've got this idea of you've got light, you've got darkness. They're opposites. He uses light to describe Christ, God, a relationship with God, and darkness to describe not having those things. So we must walk in the light if we want to have fellowship with God and with his people. Again, the theme of this book fellowship in Christ. Now, God is light, we're told. And Jesus is, as of course the scripture teaches us, the light of the world. So it's proper and appropriate to say that God is light, for after all, he said, let there be light. He created light, but he is light, and the idea is to distinguish him from darkness. To follow him is to walk in the light. To reject him is to walk in darkness. That's clear. To follow him is to walk in the light. To reject him is to walk in darkness. This was Jesus' message to John and to his disciples and John's message to the early church. You have a choice to make. One of the things I'm noticing in our culture today is people like to have it every way they can, so to speak. They, they want to be both for and against. Uh, they, they want to be liked by this group of people and liked by that group of people. Uh, they're not looking to make waves. You'll see uh, corporations now, you know, they craft their policies so that no one will dislike them, you know. And, and it's funny because, you know, when does someone actually take a stand? Anybody have any convictions anymore? You know, I mean, you're only allowed to do this groupthink thing on the subject of everything from our health to the world in which we live. We are allowed as individuals to have convictions. And we don't have to think the way everyone else thinks. And it's very important that if we're following Jesus, walking in the light, we recognize the rest of the world is in darkness. We really shouldn't have all that much in common with them. But there are a lot of Christians today who want it both ways. They want to walk with God, have a relationship with God, but they want the world to love them and accept them for who they are. It's never going to work that way. Don't you know that? If they treated Jesus, our teacher, our master that way, his students, his followers, his disciples are going to be treated the same way. Jesus told us that. So if your goal is to be liked by everyone, good luck with that. It's never going to happen. Unless you're so wishy-washy that you just tell everyone what they want to hear. And even then, eventually, those people, they get disliked, deplatformed, and canceled as well. So it was A.W. Tozer who said, I realize I can't make anyone happy, so, uh, you know, I, I, I can't make everyone happy, so I don't try to make anyone happy. I realize I can't make everyone happy, so I don't try to make anyone happy. That should not be your goal. Walking in the light is your goal. To walk as Christ has called you to walk. If we do not follow Jesus, we walk in darkness, and we do not have fellowship with God. That's what it means when he says in verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness. We lie and do not live by the truth. Now, he's targeting the Gnostics. He's looking at those individuals, those heretics, and saying, you claim these things, but they're not true. There are a lot of people who say, oh, I have a relationship with God, but they don't. And that was the case then. That's the case now as well. And I'm not judging anyone. But he makes the conditions for fellowship clear. This is a truth regardless of our claim to fellowship with God. The Gnostics claim to be closer to God than anyone. They believe their great knowledge made them very close to God, and yet they weren't. They were lying to themselves. And we would be lying and living a lie if we claimed to have fellowship with God apart from Christ and his word. That's the point of what John opens up with here. 
And also in verse 7, and I've read it already, but if we walk in the light, here's the antithesis, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So there are the conditions for fellowship with each other and with God. It's through the person of Jesus Christ. If we do follow Jesus, we walk in the light and we do have fellowship with God and his people. We have fellowship with his people because we're all following Jesus together. And we have fellowship with God through the blood of Jesus, which pays the price for our sins. I know you've heard this before, but unfortunately, more and more in today's world, uh, the the cultural church, uh, that is the church that wants to be liked by the culture, blend in the culture, the cultural church uh, is, is trying to blur the distinctions between the culture and the church. The true church of Jesus Christ makes it very clear there is a huge distinction because we walk in the light, they walk in darkness. And we're not passing judgment, but judgment is passed on those that walk in, in darkness by God's word and by his spirit, not by us. So you, you got to take a stand. Sooner or later, you got to stand for something. Sooner or later, you got to stand up for what you believe. I mean, you can't go through life not having any convictions and expect to be respected by anyone. I mean, it's just not going to work. So the first thing we see, we must walk in the light. I think we understand what that means. Second thing we're going to look at, we must confess our sins. Isn't that something? We must walk in the light. That is to walk with God. But we we continue to sin. I think everyone who's honest would say, yeah, we continue to sin. You have to confess your sins. Oh, pastor, I don't want to confess my sins. Well, you don't need to confess them to me. I'm not a priest. You know, you don't need to tell me what's going on in your life. If the Lord leads you to discuss it with someone, great, for accountability. But I can't forgive you. Only God can forgive you. And confessing your sins to God is something that's necessary. It's a condition for fellowship. Oh, pastor, you're saying if I don't confess, I'm not forgiven. No, I'm not saying that because you're forgiven at the cross. But if you don't confess your sins, you have something in your life that's hindering you from fellowship with one another, and with God. So you need to confess your sins. Here's what we read, and it's a little bit longer section. Verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You see, that's what the Gnostics said. They, They were without sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Very, very distinct teaching. I mean, there's no room for gray here. It's black and white. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, some people would tell you that Christ died on the cross just for the sins of those who believe. But there the scripture makes it clear, for the sins of the whole world. But that doesn't mean that everyone has con- uh, meets the conditions for fellowship with God. Because confession is primary, repentance is essential, And forgiveness is the result of a heart that confesses and asks for forgiveness. It is is part of the process. Confession, repentance, which means you change, or at least you try to. And you receive forgiveness and redemption because Christ did the work. You just need to appropriate that finished work in your life by faith. And so when we talk about confessing our sins... That's what it means. It's not that if you don't confess them, God can't forgive you. It's that if you don't confess your sins, you won't be right with God. You won't have the right attitude about sin. You won't have the right heart toward God because sin will hinder you in your relationship with him. So let's look at verses just 8 and 10. I want to read them again. It says, If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Jump down to verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. That's very strong language. That's very strong language. But what he's saying is, if we do not confess our sins, we're claiming to be without sin. You have anything to confess? No, I didn't do anything wrong. That, you know, that kind of attitude 
And we don't have fellowship with God. Now, here's the thing. We would be deceiving ourselves into believing and living a lie. And that's exactly what the Gnostics were doing. They were lying to themselves. And they were telling everyone else something that wasn't true. They were saying, I don't have sin in my life. I mean, if I sinned against you, it wasn't me anyway. It was just my body. My body's wicked. It can never be redeemed. My spirit, my spirit's never sinned. I don't sin. Imagine thinking that way, but that's how they taught. There were varying degrees of Gnosticism, but essentially they deceived themselves into believing and living a lie. And of course we would be calling Jesus a liar, and we would be rejecting the truth of his word in our lives. So by confessing, you and I, we are saying the same thing about sin that God says about sin. So maybe you don't like it that the Bible says that a certain type of sexual relationship is sin. Or maybe you don't like it that the Bible says that stealing is a sin or murders a sin. Maybe you don't like it. Well, it really doesn't matter whether you like it. The Bible says sin is sin. And when you and I, when we say the same thing about sin, and especially when we've committed some of those sins, we have met the conditions for fellowship with God through faith, by grace through faith. And that's what we're being told here. It's a very important truth of how we have a relationship with God and have fellowship with others. Now, if we do confess our sins, we claim to be sinners. We claim to be sinners. We're we're basically saying if we don't confess our sins, uh, we claim to be without sin, and we don't have fellowship with God. But if we do confess our sins, we claim to be sinners. We say, I'm a sinner. I mean, that's what it means to be born again. You're essentially saying, look, I'm a sinner. I need God. And we do have fellowship with God. We do because of our confession, because of the truth that we proclaim in our lives. Look at verse 9, precious verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, he's faithful, but he's also just because Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. So he's not doing something like, let's say I'm selling cars and you come to me and my boss isn't around. And I give you one of those deals, you know, under the table type deals. I would be doing something unjust, something wrong to help you out. And you'd like me very much, but I still wouldn't be doing the right thing. But God doesn't forgive us in an unjust manner or do something for us that's unjust because he took upon himself the penalty of sin and paid the price of sin, which is death. By offering us eternal life because and through his death, It's a just thing for him to forgive us. It's the right thing to do. And that's so important. God isn't letting you off the hook. He took upon himself the penalty of your sin, paid the price of sin, which is death. So important that we understand that. No one got away with anything. He took upon himself the sins of the whole world. And so we know that to be true. Now, here's the thing. He's faithful to forgive us. Why? Because he proved himself faithful by dying on the cross for our sins. And he's just, as I've said, to forgive us because he shed his own blood to pay the price for our sins. So faithful and just. And we have fellowship with God because our sins are forgiven. Amen? You're not waiting for your sins to be forgiven. Your sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ by faith. They are. That doesn't mean you don't continue to confess your sins. It just means that you are in a state of perpetual forgiveness because Christ paid it all. But it doesn't mean you don't continually, daily confess your sins. Basically saying, God, I know what sin is. I say the same thing about sin and admit that I sin. And that's the attitude of humility that allows us to meet the conditions for fellowship and have fellowship with God end with one another. We have fellowship with God because we are, I want you to remember this, I want you to remember this, continually purified from all unrighteousness. I have a water filter in my house that we use. We have one in the shower. We also have one in the kitchen, and we only drink from this filter. And the idea is that the water is continually purified You know, I don't have to pour it into one of those Brita things and wait for it to be. No, all I do is it's sort of continually purified. So here's the thing. You know, we talk about sin as being purified or forgiven. But this idea that you go through life and every time I turn on the tap, that water is purified. And every time I sin and every time I speak and every time I get it wrong or every time I just live my life or I just unfortunately mess up, 
I know I'm continually purified. That's the language here. Purify us from all unrighteousness. The idea is a continual process of purification. So when you think about it that way, what a, what a Savior we worship. What a friend we have in Jesus. Now, if we do sin, no, no, John doesn't pretend. He doesn't live in this world where he says, well, you shouldn't sin. I mean, he wrote the book, right? My dear children, I write this to you in verse two, uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. I, I, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But he goes on to talk about, but if anyone does sin. So what is he saying? He's saying, well, you know, I'm sharing with you what you need to know so you can live in the light. Confess your sins, yes, but live in the light. Live uprightly before God. Obey his word. But because we are imperfect, because we are just human beings, everyone knows we're going to continue to sin willfully, unfortunately, and sometimes not willingly, not willfully. Sometimes we're just going to mess up. You can sin by not being able to do what you want to do, and you can sin willfully because you don't want to do what you need to do or should do. But all of the sin that we're talking about is a part of our lives as human beings, but as Christians, it's purified, continually purified. Think about that analogy, that water purifier. You're just continually pure. You don't have to worry. Did some sin get through? Now, I don't know if my water purifier is that good, but did some sin get through? Did I didn't see some particle of uranium coming through my pipes? I don't know, but I know that when it comes to Christ's forgiveness, I'm continually purified from sin. Can I hear an amen? That's a good word, right? So as we look at this, we know that if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We read that, right? If we have, anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So that's a very precious truth. John's purpose, as we've said in writing this epistle, it's so that they will not sin. But when we do sin, he is our righteous defender before a holy God. He's the Lamb of God that was sacrificed for our sins, for the sins of the whole world. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the whole world. I want to point out that when we talk about atoning sacrifice, the Old Testament had a word for atonement. It was a Hebrew word. It meant to cover something. It, to cover something. So the only way I can think of it is I'm one of those people that hates to get dings in my car, right? So like you go to the supermarket and someone's careless with the shopping cart and now you have a ding in your car. You can cover it over, right? You, 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 know, you, you know it's still there if you're like a maniac like me. You know it's still there. You can, cover, you can compound it. You can try to cover it over. That's what the Old Testament was like. It was the atonement of the Old Testament was to cover over sin, hide it. So like sometimes uh, if you have a, a flaw in a carpet or you have some flooring, you put a plant over it and you don't want to cover it. Nobody knows it's there, but you know it's there. So here's the thing. That's the kind of atonement that took place in the Old Testament. It covered sin. Do you know what New Testament atonement is? If you will, to use the car analogy, it's completely buffing it out and repainting it. It's, it's the idea that it's, it is completely taken away. It's no longer there. To use the flooring analogy, you, you pick up the, the tile or whatever it is and you, you replace it. It's, it's taken away. The sin is no longer there. Can I hear an amen? It's a big difference. That's a huge difference. Covering something up versus it's gone. Hey, I thought there was a ding here. There was. It's been taken away. You see that idea? I'm trying to use analogies that we can relate to because sin taken away is so much different than sin covered up. And all the Old Testament with the death and blood of animals, sheep, goats, bulls, all that could do is cover sin. And that was the atonement of the Old Testament. But the atoning sacrifice that John is talking about in the New Testament, the word means, as it says here, it's, it's to take away to take away and to know that my sins have been taken away and that I'm continually purified all through Jesus Christ by placing faith in him. Confessing my sin means I, can, I put my faith in him. Receiving forgiveness through repentance. 
My sins are gone. They are no more. And that's where the wonderful hymns of previous decades and even centuries come into play. Because when you read those precious words, my sin, not in part, but the whole, he's nailed to the cross. I find it no more. Ah, you, when you think about your sin being completely taken away, it it blows your mind to really think about just what that means. Why the New Testament is so much better than the Old. Ooh, okay. We know what John's purpose was. We know we continue to sin. We know that we have fellowship with God through the blood of Jesus, which pays the price for our sins. All of this is a precious, wonderful truth. And John makes it clear. These are the conditions for fellowship with God and with one another. Okay. We've talked about walking in the light. We've talked about confessing our sins. How about obedience? Where does obedience come in? Because some Christians think, well, I need to obey God and then I'll be saved. No, you obey God because you're saved. Are you with me? You love God's grace? Say amen. If you love God's grace, then you know you obey God. Why? Because you love God. You don't obey God to prove your love. Your obedience proves your love for God. You see, it's, it's very important that you understand, yes, we are called to obey his commands. Yes. But if we sin, it doesn't say just really try hard. It says we have an advocate with the Father. That is a lawyer, really. Uh, One who speaks to the Father in our defense. And it's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Not you trying to be righteous. So just understand that truth. But now let's talk about what it means to obey. Now, in verses 3 through 6, this is what John tells us. We know. We know. Now, why is that important? Do you remember what I told you? The Gnostics, the word Gnostic is where we get the word know from, right? So you'll see John say things like, we know. They're walking around saying, we know, we know. And he's saying, we know. You think you know, but you don't. We know the truth, the light. You'll see that come up a lot here. And John is is making an impassioned case against these heretics who went around telling everybody, well, we know. And if you're like us, then you'll know. But they were wrong. They didn't know. They were living in darkness. So he says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. See, they're walking around in disobedience saying, we know, we know. And he's saying, we know that we have come to know him if, if, conditional, if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. I thought I was tough on those that were you know, against the gospel. <laughs> he goes, does not know what he commands. He's a liar. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete or full in him, or mature, if you will. This is how we know we are in him. And whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So it's very important. Remember the Gnostics... They talked about Jesus, that he walked on this earth, but he didn't really walk because he didn't have a body. There's so much in the language. It's so obvious that John is is going after his critics who were harming Christians by teaching them false doctrine. And by saying it this way, he makes it abundantly clear what the truth really is. So as far as obedience is concerned, if we obey his commands, we affirm that we know him and that we have a relationship with him. We're showing the world we do. This is only true if we live our lives and we live lives of obedience to God. So we would be lying and living a lie if we claim to know God apart from obedience to him. So don't tell me you know God, but then you just live a life of disobedience without confessing your sin. I've met people who claim to be Christians, so-called, who live in complete disobedience. And if they come to you and they say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm broken because I keep sinning in this area of my life. I can look at them and say, you know something? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I can say that that person's living in the light, is living in the truth. Oh, but pastor, he's not perfect. (laughs) Neither am I, neither are you. What makes that person meet the conditions for fellowship, whereas the person who comes along and says, well, I don't sin, and yet you look at their life and you see what they're living like and you know they're living in disobedience, the difference is the person living in disobedience makes excuses and doesn't confess their sins. 
They don't live in obedience. And they, they cover their own sin by saying, well, it's not really sin. Whereas the person who's broken, who might sin twice as much as the person who's not, meets the conditions for fellowship because the condition for fellowship is confession. Are you with me? Does that bother you? Because sometimes it bothers people to know that God doesn't accept us on the basis of our works. See, you want to be liked by God more if you do really well, right, and do really good. That, that's just human nature. Think about the prodigal son when he came back. But think about his brother, if you're familiar with that parable. He was all ticked off because the father accepted the son, who he had no good business accepting. He wouldn't even come to the party. He was all ticked off. I did everything right. You didn't throw a party for me. You see, that's how we can be with the grace of God if we're stingy with the grace of God. Yet the grace of God is immeasurable. It's unconditional. So let's see it properly. So when we talk about obedience and the conditions for fellowship, let's make sure that we understand God loves us so that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, if we obey his word, look at where it says in verses 5 and 6, but if anyone obeys his uh, word, God's love is truly made complete in him. So if we obey his word, we affirm that we love him. We, we, we affirm that he lives in us and that we live in him. We have a relationship with him because we obey his word. Here's what's happened in the past few decades. Pastors and churches have stopped teaching the word of God. They, many of them become entertainers. They're very entertaining to listen to. But they've stopped teaching the word of God, so people don't really know what the word of God says anymore, which makes it very easy to go to church and not realize you're living in sin. But pastor, if we started pointing out sin, people would stop coming. Our numbers would go down. I mean, that's really what they won't say, but that's really, the, that's really what they are thinking. If we challenge people with the truth, they're liable to walk out and never come back and stop writing checks. Yeah. They're also likely to get saved and spend an eternity in heaven. But I'll take my chances with that preaching the gospel and seeing lives changed and people living for God and living for Jesus and obedience to his word, I think it's worth the risk. What do you think? <laughs> okay. If we obey his word, and we need to, we affirm that we love him and that he lives in us and that we live in him and love for God and obedience to God and his word are synonymous. You can't say I love God and then not obey him. They're the same thing. I think that's clear in verse 5. If anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. And this is how we know we're in him. Can't have it both ways. Can't disobey God and then say you have a relationship with God. Again, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Let's be clear. If anyone says he doesn't sin, he lies and the truth isn't in him. We're not saying you go about saying, well, I'm never going to sin again. Meeting the conditions for fellowship with God doesn't mean living a perfect life. He did that already. He met those conditions. You simply need to confess your sins by faith, and then you can have fellowship in Christ. Seems so clear, and yet we mess that up. Well, this is only true if we imitate Christ as we follow him and live for him. And again, the Gnostics didn't. And so that clarification, that distinction needs to be made, and John does. Okay, so we've talked about walking in the light, confessing our sins, and obeying his commands. Let's get to what is probably, I think, the most difficult of the things we should see in our lives and conditions for fellowship in Christ. Here it is. You ready for it? It's a tough one. We must love one another. See, I can almost get behind confessing my sins, walking in the light, and obeying his commands, but now you're asking me to love other sinners. And that's difficult. And you know what? Sometimes it's just not even enjoyable. Actually, most of the time it's not. Because loving someone who's a sinner means, first of all, seeing them as God sees you and loving them as God loves you. And that's hard for someone who likes to be proud or doesn't like to accept people the way they are because that's what we're made of. That's the stuff we're made of. And yet, that's the second great commandment, loving our neighbors as ourselves. I think this is where I fall short. I'm sure that's where we all fall short. Not that we always perfectly love God, but i got to be honest. As a Christian, that's much more appealing than loving someone who may not even love me back. I know God loves me, so loving him in return, I can do that in humility. But when someone is just annoying and hateful, 
You know, they have these little signs in front of their house that says, they say, hate doesn't live here. Yeah, I feel like knocking on the door, waving my Trump flag and seeing how much they love me. That's not an endorsement for Trump. I just, I wonder how they would react. I wonder if hate would live there. You see, that's what happens when we, we think, we think, we think that love is just this idea that, oh, we love everyone that agrees with us. But what happens when God calls us to love people that have a completely different idea politically or spiritually or morally? See, love and loving others, that's a condition for fellowship. Look at verses 7 through 11 in chapter 2. We must love one another. John says this a lot, by the way. Dear friends, I like the way he opens, dear friends. Like you can tell he's, what he's going to say is going to be a little tough to swallow. Dear friends, I am not writing a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. The old command is the message you have heard. But then he says something peculiar. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going. Again, he does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. And yes, he's talking about the Gnostics, but it's more than that. There are people who think you can love God and not love your brother. Now, who is our brother? That's an interesting, interesting question. Some people say, well, other Christians. Yeah, I don't know about that. I think it's more there are brothers who are brothers in Christ, and there are brothers or sisters who, who are not. And I think loving others simply means the kind of love that Jesus has for the world. That he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That God demonstrates his own love in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What? While we were what? While we were yet sinners. So your brother is a sinner whether he's saved or not. Are you loving your brother? See, we don't need a little sign that says on our lawn, Hate doesn't have a home here. Hate doesn't, you know, live here. I mean, when you need to put a sign out like that, it probably does. But saying you love Jesus means that there's no hate in my heart toward you just because you hate me. Because what I read in, in the Word is that we're supposed to what? Our enemies. Hate our enemies? No. Love our enemies. Pray for those that despitefully use us. Is that hard? It's impossible. It's not hard. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. With man, these things are possible. But with God, all things are possible. So this is a very important condition for fellowship, and it means loving one another. And, and I'll tell you what, when he says love is an old command, and it's an old command in principle. And yet it's a new command by experience. He, what, what he's saying, and I know that can be confusing, because notice he says, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one. And then later on in verse 8, he says, yet I am writing you a new command. Which is it, John? What, what are you saying? It's an old command in principle. It's been around forever. But it's a new command in experience. Through the person of Jesus Christ, they actually got to see what love looks like. And now, living according to that example is a new command. Whereas the actual command is an old one, the new command is an experience. He's taking some truth, and he's expounding and expanding it and, and, and giving us a perspective on love because love is an old command. It's a familiar and fundamental command to all Christians. You know that. I mean, this command was contained in the Mosaic Law, the love your neighbor as yourself. This isn't a new command. And this command was exemplified in the life of Jesus. He so loved the world. But love is a new command in this way because it is fresh and alive to those in fellowship with Christ. You see, now we can actually do it. Before you tried your best and you failed, now you can actually love because God puts his love, he's poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So what we know to be true is that God can love the world through us. And so, yes, it's an old command, but no, it's a new command as well. 
The truth, of this, the truth of this new command is seen in the life of Christ and is now seen in us, and the light of this new command is seen in the life of Christ and is now seen in us. The truth and the life. Those are words that come up a lot in John's writings. Notice he says in verse 8, Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. He's saying the truth and the light of God's love is seen in the person of Jesus. Imitate Christ. That's the new command. It used to be love one another. Now it's love one another as Christ loves you. Okay? So it's an expansion of a truth, not a new truth. I hope that helps. Sometimes you read those things and you're like, uh-huh. It's not really poetic, but it has that kind of flair and you've got to think about it, which is okay. If we hate others, if we hate others, look at verses 9 and 11. I'm going to read these again. If anyone, or excuse me, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Still in the darkness. And then jump down to 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. He's calling these enlightened ones basically blind, these, these Gnostics. But he's also saying, if we hate others, we live and walk in darkness and do not have fellowship with God. Brothers and sisters, over this last year and a half, actually over the last couple of years, it's been very easy to hate people in the flesh. It's been very easy. I can give you a list of five people that I'm still working on. So here's the thing. It is really easy to allow hate in your heart, especially when the people say they hate us. But last time I checked, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that wasn't really Christ's command, was it? So how do we respond to hate? With love and the gospel. Well, that's only going to make them hate us more. Maybe, but you're giving them an opportunity to love God. And if they respond, they won't regret it. And you won't stand before the throne of God saying, "Mm, maybe I should have been more loving. Well, if we hate others, we live and walk in darkness and we don't have fellowship with God. Again, this is true regardless of what we say, what we claim, our claim to fellowship with God. We will stumble, as it says, stumble through life because we can't see where we're going without the light of Christ. These are beautiful pictures, word pictures stumbling in the darkness. Why? Because, you know, you've got the blinders of hate on your eyes. And whether that hate manifests itself as racism or political activism, whatever it is that is blinded you to loving your, your neighbors yourself, your, if you're a liberal and you don't love conservatives or you're conservative and you don't love, love liberals, uh, listen, you still are wearing the blinders of hate if you hate people. So regardless, listen, I joke around a little bit. You guys know I'm a conservative. I'm an independent conservative. But regardless of whether you agree with me, that's not even important to me. You know what's important to me? That despite the fact we disagree, you can love me and I can love you. You know, I remember, I'm, I'm 56. I remember a time where my best friend was a Democrat. And you know what? I was a Republican. It was the Reagan years. So I, at the time, was a Republican. I'm not so much anymore. And I remember... We hung out every night, and we even talked politics. And he was my best friend, and we never hated each other, though we disagreed about policy. I remember talking about our plans for Social Security, and we had very different plans in our minds. This is the kind of stuff these nerds sit around doing, you know, in their late teens, early 20s. But, you know, this is what we did. We sat around and talked policy and politics, and you know what? At the end of the night, I was like, all right, so I'll see you tomorrow. All right, see you tomorrow. Take care, bro. It doesn't seem to be like that anymore, does it? You got to hate, you got to destroy your enemy now. On both sides, let's be honest. I mean, I heard someone the other day say, uh, one of our senators, I guess it was Lindsey Graham, he tested positive for COVID, which is not an uncommon thing these days, whether the test is correct or not, who knows. But, and, 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 and this activist, politician from New England, said she hopes he dies. Happened to be a Black Lives Matter spokesperson, but that doesn't mean everyone in Black Lives Matter says that. But think about that for a minute. Would you actually say that to somebody? This person said it publicly in social media. See, that's what hate will do. Our country is in deep trouble 
if the only way we can relate to one another is to hate one another and wish each other to die. The Civil War happened, <laughs> you know, and there was a lot of that, and it nearly destroyed our country. And maybe that war was necessary, but here's the thing. I do not want to see us degenerate into a state where either we love you because you agree with us or we hate you because you don't. I think this is a very precious book for us right now as Christians. Helps us to see things more clearly. It really does. Remember, conditions for fellowship include loving one another. Now, and I struggle with this too. I'm just being honest, right? I do. I do. I really do. Because sometimes people say the most hateful things and it hurts. And yet we can't hate in return. So we're going to stumble through life. That's a great expression. You know, you got blinders on. You're walking around bumping into things because... You can't see where you're going. You don't have the light of Christ, which is love. Now, Jesus gave us two great commandments, didn't he? I mean, look at verse 10 again. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. You can see. And if you can see, you don't stumble. If you can't, you do. So if we love others, we live and walk in the light. And we do have fellowship with God. Do you want to have fellowship with God? One of the conditions for fellowship is loving your brother, loving your neighbor as yourself. Even if your neighbor voted for the other guy. Even if your neighbor's dead relative voted for the other guy. We can't be in a situation where, I'm just being silly, you can't, you can't be in a situation where it's, it's, it's they're them and we're us. It has to be the love of Christ if we're going to reach this world. Okay, with the, with the gospel. Okay, so we will not stumble through life because we can see where we're going in the light of Christ. All beautiful metaphor and analogy that he uses here. And as I said, Jesus gave us two great commandments to live by, love God and love others. Love God and love others. Now, closing this up, we've talked about walking in the light. We talked about confessing our sins, obeying his commands, and loving one another. Finally, we find out that John's reason for writing this epistle is to encourage the early church in their faith. So this isn't like a downer or a bummer of a message. This is supposed to encourage you. And now he speaks very poetically. But he really kind of says three things, but says them the same way. Let's, uh, let's go ahead now and just read verses uh, 12 through 14. This reads almost like poetry or like Proverbs. It has that Hebrew wisdom literature feel, this section. I'll read it in its entirety. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers or parents, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. To love one another is to overcome the evil one. You do understand that, right? When you love your brother, when you love your neighbor as yourself, you're punching Satan in the eye. You understand that, right? You're giving him a black eye. Because what he's trying to do is get you as a Christian to hate. And if you give him that, you're in trouble. So overcoming the evil one. Let, let's look at what he's really saying here. John is giving us his reason for uh, writing this epistle, and his reason is to encourage the early church in their faith. He writes to them as dear children. Now, you might be thinking, well, he's writing to three different groups of people, right? Dear children, fathers, and young men. No, 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 no. He's writing to all of us in three different ways. First is dear children, because you can be a son, a father, a brother, an uncle, a nephew, all at the same time, right? Or a sister, an aunt, a mother, a grandmother. You can be all those things. So let's look at it not just so narrowly. Let's see what he's saying. He writes to them as dear children in the faith, and he describes them in those two verses as those who are forgiven and know God in Christ. Look, let's read it again. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name, verse 12. And then you jump down to the latter part of verse 13. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. So as it relates to dear, dear children, dear children are those that are forgiven, and dear children are loved by God. 
Children whose sins have been forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. Children who have known the Father because they know His Son, Jesus Christ. So you're a child of God, can I hear an amen? Because of what He did for you. Then He talks to us differently. He writes to us as fathers. Think of it as fathers and mothers or parents. Look what it says in the first part of verse 13. He says, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. And if you jump down to 14, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. He repeats it twice for a reason. Remember that word no being used over and over again. As parents, as those who are mature, you should know better. You should know God and know who God is and know God's word. And he says, he writes to them as fathers in the faith, parents in the faith, who know God in Christ, fathers or parents who have known the eternal God, because they know Jesus Christ, fathers who have known their creator, because they know Jesus Christ. So realize when he says, because you know him who was from the beginning, that mentions two things, really. Because he was from the beginning, he's the eternal God, who's always been. But because he was there in the beginning when he created all things, he's also not only the eternal God, but God the creator. Are you with me? So as mature believers, you know these two truths. And that's why he's writing. Because you know that. You know God is the creator. You know God is the creator. You know God is the eternal God. You know that. That's what you know. And finally, the last group of people, or really just the way he speaks to the entire group of people. He writes to them as young men, young men and women in the faith, who are victorious in Christ. And that's what we want to be. It's a little different. He says, I write to you, young men, in verse 13, because you have overcome the evil one. We've already talked about how you overcome the evil one. And then, I write to you, young men, in the latter part of verse 14, because you're strong. Strong, and the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. I think we got everything we need right there. Because the word of God is in us, we're strong in the word of God, we overcome the evil one. So when we know the truth about God and his word, God's love, sin, all of the things we've talked about tonight. And I said before, many churches are no longer preaching the word of God, so that people aren't strong. They, they don't really know. They're not young men and women who are victorious over the devil. Instead, they're confused. Because faith comes by hearing the word of God. So as a pastor, my job is to teach you God's word as best I can. He writes to them as young people in the faith who are victorious in Christ. Now, these young men and women, young people who have overcome Satan's influence through faith in Jesus Christ. Young men who are strong because Jesus Christ, God's living word, lives in them. So it's possible to be a dear child, to be a parent in the faith, and to be young in the faith and strong in the faith. And all of it comes about as a result of loving God and loving his people, walking in the light, confessing our sins, obeying his commands, loving one another. These are the conditions for fellowship. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, because you've given us an understanding of your word that helps us to know we are called to love you and to love each other. Give us now The ability, Lord, the power, the anointing to be able to love our enemies. To love and pray for those that despitefully use us, that would take away our freedoms, that would relegate us to a place in society where we barely exist. Oh, Lord God, we, we, we know the answer is love. If enough people know that, then, then as Christians, we can reach the world and change the world. You'll change the world one heart at a time. Help us to love you. Help us to love one another. Help us to love those in the world with the truth of your gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.